believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be, and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. Welcome to our special podcast series. You'll notice that this Crossroads of Faith series is a little different from our previous episodes, our usual In Good Faith episodes. We're still talking about people's faith experiences, but this time we're going a little bit deeper into the history and how different faiths have occupied the same space, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not, here in Turkey. I took a crew with me to Turkey at the end of April 2023 just as the holy fasting month of Ramadan was ending for the Muslim world. Our intent was to capture the lived experience of a country that's 97% Muslim, but has a long history of being Christian, and before that, the polytheism of Romans and Greeks all the way back to the Hittites of the 18th century BC. So, in this series, come along with me as I interview experts and religious leaders, as well as people in the street and in their homes and places of worship. We opened this episode with the sounds of Eid celebrations at historic and beautiful Sulaymaniyah Mosque, where thousands of worshipers gathered for the final morning prayer of Ramadan. We saw men carrying prayer rugs, families with gifts, bringing flowers and candy to share with each other, as well as local television stations broadcasting the event. The men knelt in rows inside the mosque while the women and younger children waited in the courtyard. There was a tangible feeling of excitement and joy in the air as the prayers began. So why Turkey? Today in the West, when we think of Turkey, we might be thinking of Turkish food, like doner kebab or Turkish delight. Or you might think of it as an important political place. It's surrounded by Russia, Iran, Syria, and Afghanistan, and it's home to several strategic U.S. military bases. And if you're following the refugee crisis in the Middle East, you know that thousands of refugees have come into Turkey from Syria. And you may have heard of the earthquakes earlier this year that devastated southeast Turkey. The thing is, the place we call Turkey, or Turkiya, as they call it, is right in the middle of everything. It connects Europe and Asia. It's just across the Mediterranean Sea from Africa, and everybody who was a major political player in history came through this area conquering, and they brought their own religious traditions. So we see the remnants of all those cultures, those religions, the languages, and even attitudes still here today. That's what we're so excited to explore. In this first episode of the series, we'll give you a historical timeline to understand the richness of Turkey's past, and we'll introduce you to the topics and the places we'll explore and people we'll meet throughout the rest of the series. So think of this episode as a sampler of the series to come. You'll hear these voices again throughout the following episodes. As I mentioned, Turkey today is 97% Muslim, but for a thousand years before that, it was a Christian empire. So how did we get to where we are today? I talked with lots of experts for this series, researchers and scholars in ancient scripture, classics, archeology, span languages, history, and right now, we are going to guide you through a timeline to help ground you for the rest of the series. Here's Professor Avram Shannon with the most obvious starting point, the empire of Alexander the Great. Alexander had this really great idea. He said, what if not just spending our empire militarily, we spread it culturally? What if we make everybody Greek in addition to whatever else they are, and then everybody will be Greek, it'll be awesome. So he establishes Alexandria, he establishes Greek cities, all over, and this proves to be very, very effective. And so you find a lot of cultural, um, it's, it's not even fair to call it assimilation, it's just, just living. So, so they become, in some sense, Greek, 
in some senses not. And that's where the tensions are, is trying to decide where and when and how Greek we can be and how Greek we cannot be. When Alexander's empire breaks up, you get Alexandria and the, the successor states, right? And things are okay under many of them, but the problem always is when things start to go bad, you start to look for a scapegoat. Those scapegoats tended to be minority groups like the Jews, and then after them, the Christians. So how did the Christians come to dominate the area for so long? We talked to Professor Cecilia Peek, who picks up on the story of the Byzantine Empire. So the 3rd century AD in, in Roman history, you go through a 50-year period uh, from about 235 on where you have something like 18 different emperors. So mm. it's lots of conflict, lots of stresses on the borders of the empire, lots of internal stresses within you know, Roman leadership, lots of civil conflict. But in 312, famously, Constantine defeats Maxentius at a battle known as the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. But the claim is that Constantine had this vision the night before this battle, and this supposedly marks the moment of his conversion to Christianity. But in 324, that's when Constantine becomes really the sole master of the Roman Empire. And then he announces that he wants to found a city, and in 330, he inaugurates the founding of that city, and that is on the site of a city that already existed there, right at the Bosporus, known as Byzantium, and he renames it and inaugurates the sort of founding of that city in 330 AD, and that's Constantinople. So under Constantine, bishops have access to him. Christians cease to be a persecuted or marginalized group. They hold significant positions in Constantine's government, and they are explicitly protected. After Alexander and the Greeks and the Romans, who turned into the Christians of the Byzantine Empire, came the Ottomans. And to tell their story, let's hear from Professor Christine Isom Farharin. The Ottoman Empire, it began not really as an empire, but as a small principality about 1300 and lasted until 1923, you know, post-World War I. So a very long-lived empire, one of the largest empires in the West with a lot of overlap with Roman territories. So the Ottomans were a Turkish dynasty. There was such a mass migration that in like 200 years, the, the name had changed to Turkey of this area of the world. When they began in 1300, they were one among several principalities. And they just ended up being much more successful than all of their rival Turkish princes that were in the area. And the Ottomans just started expanding and taking over both Byzantine territory and the territory of their Turkish rivals. And so when they began, a lot of their territory was really predominantly Christian, probably until the reign of Selim I, who reigned from 1512 to 1520, the majority population of the Ottoman Empire was Christian rather than Muslim. The Ottoman Empire fell in the early 20th century, and then Turkey reinvented itself. Professor Kent Brown walked us through this major transition. It was Kemal Ataturk who was the person who basically created the state of Turkey, moving it from the old Ottoman Empire basis to a free state, where the state was secular, out of the world of religious things. But the transition wasn't exactly seamless. We talked to United States Ambassador to Turkey, Jeff Flake, about what these changes would have meant to the people at the time. Think of having a culture and traditions that all of a sudden government changes and they say, boom, all right, nobody can wear headscarves anymore in government or business settings. The fez that men used to wear, no more. And so there were a lot of changes. And in terms of religion, the inability of women to express their religious belief by wearing a headscarf really chafed on a lot of uh, people in the country for decades. And I think rightly so. There needed to be a little correction, I guess, or more tolerance in that regard for people to practice their religious beliefs. Obviously, there's concern, particularly, you know, other Middle Eastern countries where if a headscarf is allowed, maybe it'll be mandated afterwards. And there was some concern about that. But I think with the current government, that was one of the items that they ran on, that there would be more tolerance of people to express their religious beliefs. 
Turkey used to be much more diverse, but after the First World War, the Great Exchange, uh, it's it's mostly Muslim now. But uh, they've had a great tradition in Turkey of uh, of being tolerant of other religious minorities. Ataturk remains an important figure in Turkey, in spite of the way secularism felt like a burden to some of the population. We visited Taksim Square in Istanbul, bustling with citizens, tourists, vendors, all at the intersection of the shopping district and the business sector of the city. This is Taksim Square. It's right in the middle of modern Turkey, the busy part of Istanbul. And behind me, you'll see a statue which commemorates on both sides the person who's known as the father of modern Turkey. He was born Mustafa Kemal, and later, after the formation of the country, he was given a new name, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, which means father of the Turks, and he is much beloved. You might be surprised just how much respect that he gets here. Think George Washington in the United States. What he did to modernize Turkey and bring it from what they used to call the weak man of Europe. He converted to a Western calendar. He changed from the Arabic script to the Latin script. And he established a secular republic in the Constitution, which means that today, even with 97% of the inhabitants of Turkey being Muslim, they're guaranteed religious freedom for every different faith. And we're grateful to him for that. That historical timeline is important to set out because it will help make clear all the different religious communities we hope to cover in our series and how those groups overlap or fit together. In fact, we'll hear again from our different scholars later in the series because we'll be looking at Islam and Judaism and even ancient Greek mythology over the next episodes. And we'll also be covering Christianity. As we heard, for almost a thousand years, What we think of as Turkey was a majority Christian empire. And many Christians today don't realize how quickly ancient Christianity established a foothold here in Asia Minor. In fact, 60% of the places mentioned in the New Testament are in current-day Turkey. But there were still difficulties for early Christians negotiating the practices of the culture around them and their newfound religion. I talked with Professor Luke Drake about early Christianity specifically in the city of Ephesus, to get his insights. The first few chapters in the book of Revelation are John is writing letters to these communities in Asia Minor, the cities of Ephesus. In one of his letters, he critiques those who are, he says, in a way, practicing a false religion because what are they doing? They're eating meat sacrificed to idols. He would say, you have let the culture creep in. You have defiled what is holy. Then you read the letters of Paul. Paul also addresses this question in his, in his correspondence to the Corinthians. Should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? What does Paul say? Paul says, it depends. He says, you and I know it's not a big thing because we don't even believe that these are real gods. But if you're in company with maybe a new adherent, mm-hmm. and if you think that eating that meat sacrificed to that idol is going to somehow disturb their faith, then don't do it. He said, I would abandon all meat to save the faith of my friends, essentially, is what he's saying, right? So right there, you have this question of what is ours and what is theirs? And Christians are perpetually negotiating this. We'll hear more from Luke in an upcoming episode about the New Testament writer Paul in Ephesus. We also spoke with Professor Matthew Gray about how the ancient Christians organized their first places of worship. We don't always realize how much social support and economic resources building a chapel takes. And often makeshift churches were the best people could do at the beginning. So Christian building of churches is actually a process that developed over several centuries from the initial beginnings of the early Jesus movement all the way through the Byzantine period and, of course, beyond. And so being able to spend time thinking about these early Christian spaces, whether they be homes where you're walking through a a first century house, uh, whether or not Christians actually met in that particular house that you're excavating, but still being able to think about how that type of space could have facilitated the Christian worship experience. And then walking through a Domus Ecclesia or a later Basilica, it's really remarkable, I think, to connect with the faith and the religious worship experience of our predecessors in ancient Christianity. So as I study sacred space, 
generally. It really recalls uh, some of the scholarship on sacred spaces, which focus on kind of three main things that sacred space does. It allows for the encounter with the divine. It allows for community formation and then personal transformation. But this series is not only about history and ancient sites. We also wanted to hear the experiences of current believers of various faiths and wanted to bring these interviews to you. I was privileged to meet with a Jewish community leader in Izmir, Avram Savinti. The Jews have lived in Turkey as far back as their Babylonian exile. And in fact, Avram will share with us the three waves of immigration that brought Jewish communities to Turkey. That's later in the series. I asked him how he maintains a relationship to Jerusalem as a member of the diaspora. Of course, in almost all our prayers, we used to say Jerusalem, and especially in Passover, it's the tradition is the first night we have the Passover dinner. And during the prayer, and we pray God and saying that the next year will be in Jerusalem. So it's, Jerusalem is the symbol of Judaism, let's say. When you go to Jerusalem yeah. and you go to the Kotel, the Western yeah. Wall, what do you feel there? I feel that I am Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really Jewish and a lot of emotion because mm-hmm. uh, it's a symbol, a symbol. And every time that I go to Israel, and I go often, once a year, sometimes twice a year, I used to go to the Kotel. I love how Avram mentioned the power of going to the Western Wall in Jerusalem and how being there not only reminded him of his Jewish roots, but also reestablished for him a deeper connection to his faith. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. In the city of Konya, we were able to meet with the sheikh charged with training the Sufi mystics of Turkey, Ahmet Sami Kuchik. These mystics are also known as the whirling dervishes, charismatic Muslim worshippers who dance to strengthen and express their relationship with God. Ahmet invited us into his home for a conversation about his own faith journey, including how he became a Sufi dervish. Sheikh Ahmed Sami Kuchuk, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Eyvallah efendim, hoş geldiniz, sefalar getirdiniz. The Sema training was really the breaking point of my life. For me, it was the end of a period and the beginning of a life that was completely new, more beautiful, more humane, more merciful, more decent and closer to Allah. And for me, it was really the beginning of my life. During the Sema, every time we whirl around, we chant Allah, 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 maybe for close to an hour. Allah, 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 Allah. Our right hand is raised up and our fingers are held close together. Metaphorically, we receive and gather the mercy from Allah in the palm of our hand without missing or dropping it. The fingers of our left hand are held loosely. This means that we give the truth that we receive from Allah to everyone by serving them without discriminating against anyone or anything. That's another experience we want to share with you, a ritual performance of the whirling dervishes in Cappadocia. One of our favorite experiences during the entire trip was meeting in the home of Musafar and Esengul Arslan, husband and wife from the village of Avahi. They cooked us lunch in the traditional way in a tandoor oven, something we usually associate with India. They talked to my producer, Heather, and I about cooking and rural living. It's hot. Oh, bubbles. Hot's yes. boiling. <laughs> and four and a half hours cooking slowly, slowly. Oh, wow. Mm. That looks good. Meat. The meat. Beans. Mm-hmm. And soup. 
And the soup. soup. Yeah. It yeah. smells delicious. Bulgur soup and you know bulgur? Bulgur, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it smells so good. It smells yeah. delicious. How early did you start this yeah. morning? 8.30. 8.30. Yeah. It's been cooking since then until lunchtime. Wow. And your wife makes all of that? Yeah. Well, she's very skilled. Yeah. Very skilled. You can see the belly. Good <laughs> <laughs> cooking. Well, I'm working on mine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In Istanbul, we attended a church meeting for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The worldwide membership of the church numbers about 17 million, but in Turkey, there are just about 300 members. The meeting we attended was in a small house in the business district of Istanbul, converted to be a chapel. Only about 10 people attended in person, with everyone else on Zoom. We interviewed one church member in Izmir while there, who shared with us his experience as a religious minority in Turkey. People definitely get surprised because they don't know about this church at all in general, because when they think Christianity, that they only know the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and Protestant churches. Or, like, they uh, know uh, from, like, the, from some news, from some news pieces and which which is which has lots of wrong information. What would you like other people who are members of the church outside of Turkey to know about your branch or, or about the members here? Um, uh, we are a very <laughs> we are a very small branch and the church is um, recently start to grow here, uh, but I can say that there are many strong spirits among the members here. Meeting people like Kunt is what this trip is all about, and I can't wait to share more of his interview with you later in the series. I was quite moved by the sacrifices he's made for his faith, which you'll hear more about in our last episode of the series. Our trip started in Istanbul, which straddles the boundary between Europe and Asia, and we wanted to give you a tour of Istanbul because it's vibrant and rich and fascinating, an amazing blend of ancient and modern in architecture and culture. Let's hear more from Christine Eisenver Haren about why Istanbul was so important and intriguing to empires, travelers, and conquerors. Once the Ottomans do conquer Constantinople and it becomes Istanbul, Istanbul is apparently originally a Greek word that means to the city. It's an incredibly strategic location. The Turkish Straits, which include the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, link the Black Sea to the Aegean and then the greater Mediterranean. According to one source I read, this is still a waterway that has more traffic than almost any narrow waterway in the world. There's been major battles fought there from the Golden Fleece with Jason and the Argonauts <laughs> and World War I, the Battle at Gallipoli. So uh, very strategic still today, this particular location. They build mosques, so domed buildings that look like some version of the Hagia Sophia. And so that's very typical of what an Ottoman mosque looks like. It has a large dome in the mosque. And so if you go to Istanbul, you'll see that the skyline has domes and then these pencil, they look like pencils, the minarets that the Ottomans build. And so the skyline is really spectacular. Also, when you look at people, there's a really wide variety of what people look like because there's been such a mix of peoples in this area. You can see blondes, redheads, you know, people with very dark hair. And that's one of the things I love about this place. It's such a mix. The skyline of Istanbul is remarkable. So many minarets and domes that you can see here. There are 3,000 mosques in the city alone. It's a city full of sacred spaces. So we talked with Professor Cynthia Finlayson about the inspiration and the how-to of creating sacred space. So the Sulaymaniyya Kuleyer complex that was built for his master, Suleiman the Magnificent, 
is my favorite because it dominates the city, particularly when you come in from the seaside. It's up on the highest hillside. It just crowns the whole city. And these buildings are amazing. These buildings are so spiritually oriented. There's, there's a recognition that even Sanan in his writing, he talks about the importance of space, defining human experience and, and the needs of the soul, that the space really defines how the soul is going to react in the world around it. And so he's designing spaces that are spiritually oriented. I'll talk more with Cynthia about sacred spaces in one of our next episodes. The Sulaymaniyah Mosque is truly awesome. And you might remember, this is the mosque where we started today's episode. Once we moved beyond the courtyard into the mosque itself, with its red carpets and huge hanging brass light fixtures, we got to speak with worshipers that morning and begin to understand a little bit about why this space is so sacred. Yeah, we did this and it's like a ritual that's going on. Uh -huh. We're so happy doing that because uh, we know that everything comes from Allah and goes back to Allah. I mean, I feel that too, that, that God is great. I'm a believer and so I feel like I'm with brothers and sisters in an event like this. It's very moving to me. So thank you for letting us be here. For my team, Sulaymaniyah Mosque was just the beginning of our exploration of Istanbul. We spent four days walking the stone streets, going to religious sites, and celebrating the Eid holiday with thousands of others. In fact, the government issued a safety warning while we were there due to the massive crush of visitors that brought the city's traffic to a halt. We were crowded in with families and couples and young people enjoying the beautiful spring weather and the richness the holiday and the city had to offer. United States Ambassador to Turkey, Jeff Flake, and his wife Cheryl are both fans of Istanbul. We talked to them about what draws them to the city. Well, Istanbul, it's, it's wonderful. My wife Cheryl was there 30-some uh, years ago as a BYU young ambassador, and she loved it. I grew up in Northern California, um, and so the Bay Area, San Francisco area, was very familiar to me. So when we got to Istanbul, I felt like I was home. It has a very California feel. They grow all kinds of produce there. And just the, the feeling there, it's kind of laid back, you know. I think anything along the water tends to be that way a little <laughs> bit. And there was one bridge at the time over the Bosphorus Strait, and now there are three. So in those years, it's grown quite a bit. Istanbul is actually the largest European city. So wow. 16 million people, mm. yes has to be the most beautiful city in the world. The people there are wonderful. They are kind and generous. And, uh, and I've certainly found that. It's, it's an incredible environment to, to wake up uh, every morning hearing the call to prayer yeah. and to hear it five times a day certainly reminds you of where you are. But uh, I've just been completely impressed with the way so many people live their religion. The ambassador and his wife had lots of recommendations for us as well including the spice market, where you can buy spices, teas, candy, and Turkish delight. When we went to the spice market, it was crowded with hundreds of other shoppers, lots of them tourists like us, but just as many were locals looking for essentials, like apple tea, something I learned to love for the cold spring mornings. The market is laid out in a T-shape with enormous high-vaulted ceilings covered in black and white tiles and stalls running along the walls facing each other with hawkers calling out for your attention, offering you tea or candy samples, and the spices are piled like colorful pyramids in front of the stores. Gorgeous colors, reds and yellows and orange. Okay, this is an awesome place. We're close to the Grand Bazaar, but this is the Spice Bazaar. It's all covered. I'm usually not a big fan of crowds, but this is a fun place to be in a crowd. It's part of the magic of it, all the sounds, you walk past all the different spice places. You can smell them just walking past, but of course they'll let you smell any of the ones that you want to see. And just the music playing as you go by every shop, it's, it's a very sensory experience. And when this was first started centuries ago, it was to help support the mosque. All the merchants could come, be here together. Everybody could come and buy and trade. But a percentage of the money from every shop went to the mosque and also to help feed the poor, whether they were Muslim, Christian, or Jewish. So pretty cool origins and really fun to go to today. I think I just spent way too much money on pomegranate tea and some roll-up candy. <laughs> 
We also went to the historic Egyptian obelisk in a square near the Blue Mosque, filled with sunlight and crowds of tourists. We're in Istanbul in the middle of what used to be the Hippodrome, which was the place for the horse races, for the chariot races, entertainment for the whole city. The stones have been taken away where the stands used to be. And one thing that they've preserved is the Egyptian obelisk that was brought from the Temple of Karnak in Egypt. This was something that an emperor could do to show that he now was the king of the world and not the Egyptian pharaohs. So they brought this obelisk all the way from there, set it up here, and they didn't just set it up and say, here is the obelisk. It's put on a pedestal, and on that pedestal are carvings that show the emperor, Theodosius, in the box, watching the Hippodrome and all of the races, and, and it tells how much work it took to get the obelisk from Egypt to here, just showing how powerful they were. That's something that the emperors always had to do, was project their power and show that they were invincible. And this obelisk was one of those things. And for a bit of adventure, we also toured the cisterns below the city, which for thousands of years have stored drinking water. In fact, the Byzantines were able to hold out against an Ottoman siege for almost two months because of these cisterns. These cisterns were first built using the marble pillars from destroyed pagan temples. And when you walk among the pillars, you can still see evidence of what they were, like the head of Medusa smiling up at you upside down from the water. And we toured Hagia Sophia, the jewel of Constantinople, the Christian basilica that became the inspiration for later Ottoman mosques. This is one of the most famous churches in all of Christendom. It's here in Istanbul. It's called the Hagia Sophia, or Divine Wisdom, Holy Wisdom. This was built by the Emperor Justinian, and for a thousand years, this was the biggest church in all of Christianity. Later, when the Ottomans came, it was converted to a mosque. Then in the 1930s, it became a museum for Turkey and was the most visited tourist attraction in the entire country. And then as of 2019, it's become a mosque again. It's still open though, in between prayer times, the public can go in and it's just one of the most amazing places to me to go in and to be able to see that much history and know the things that have happened there and what it's meant to people and even how it's changed hands under different regimes and different civilizations because it's been there so, so long. We stood in line for almost an hour and then finally were admitted to the vestibule and left our shoes along with the other visitors. And just as we entered the great inner hall, I saw the gorgeous imperial gate mosaic, which shows Christ on a throne. The Emperor Leo VI, the wise, is bowing to him, and above Christ's left shoulder is the archangel Gabriel, and above his right, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I love as you walk in, you see the very famous mosaic. They've kept it uncovered today. You see Christ in his throne, and you see the emperor kneeling at his feet without a crown, showing that the church was above everything. I seriously, I seriously have wanted to come to this place my whole life. It's actually kind of emotional to me to, to be here. It's just amazing. As we left through the southwest gates, we saw still another famous mosaic. This is the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child on her lap. On her right, Justinian I offers her a model of the Hagia Sophia. On her left, Constantine presents her a model of the city. This was a really moving experience for me. We'll talk more about Hagia Sophia and what it means to believers of multiple faiths in an upcoming episode. And you'll be able to see video of our visit on our YouTube channel. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. As we left Istanbul, we spent a lot of time driving through the beautiful countryside of Western Turkey in a white touring van with our guides Lutfi and Guvin. These two men smoothed our way, setting up hotels, translating for us, negotiating at historic sites, and we could not have done the trip without them. And you'll get to hear from them from time to time in upcoming episodes. During our travels, we stopped in the city of Konya. 
where the poet and mystic Rumi lived in the 13th century. Today, Konya is a modern city with a subway system and a sports stadium and a regional airport. But Rumi, after all these centuries, remains an important cultural touchstone, drawing pilgrims from all over the Middle East to reverence at his tomb, which we will visit. The poet we know in the U.S. as Rumi was born in present-day Afghanistan. He was born Jalil al-Din Muhammad. But Rumi was added as a nickname, and that's the way that we have known him for centuries. It means an outsider, someone from a foreign place. He came here to present-day Turkey, and we are in his tomb in the town of Konya. This is where he lived, where he philosophized, where he studied, and where he started a school and a movement. Rumi was famous for his poetry, but also for his sermons and for his philosophy of becoming detached from everything that would not last and only becoming attached to that which was heavenly, which for him, of course, was God. So who was Rumi? Experts Kevin Blankenship and Rasul Sorhabi spoke with us in greater detail about Rumi's background and his philosophy. I think we're all still trying to figure out who Rumi is, and maybe even Rumi himself is trying to figure out who he is by uh, by engaging with poetry and, and other types of writing. Uh, he was a uh, he was a mystic. He was a thinker, as you said. Uh, he was in fact a legal scholar as well. Um, you know, came from the eastern part of the Islamic world. Uh, left there, f- his father. Uh, decided to move for professional and personal reasons. Um, this is the 13th century. There was a lot of um, economic and political instability, turmoil, but also opportunity that came with it. And so they moved further west to what we call today Anatolia or Turkey um, and, uh, and eventually settled in Konya in 1229 A.D., uh, and uh, Rumi lived there for 48 years. He died there in 1273, and that's kind of where he made his, uh, his name as a, as a thinker and a mystic. In Persian, uh, the word we use for mystic is arif. So uh, arif is someone who knows but through the heart rather than processing through the logical mind. Rumi had this transformation. He realized love in his heart. So all these poems are the expressions of his experience. So Irumi connects us with the source. And whether our love is towards our children or our spouses or our nature or our God, the source of loving is the same. I think that is the power of uh, any spiritual poetry. Not only Rumi, but any, any spiritual poet has that quality because really spiritual poetry comes from the heart. It's not something that you try to make it, you compose it uh, through logical you know, thinking. In Persian, there's a saying that anything that comes out of the heart, it settles in someone else's heart as well. You've been listening to just a sample of the people and the places we want to introduce you to in our 10-episode series on Crossroads of Faith in Turkey. And Once we were really into Istanbul and many of the other places we'd been, Heather and I had a moment to sit on a boat on the Bosphorus as we were seeing how things looked from being right in between Europe and Asia and talk about why we do what we do on In Good Faith and why interfaith interactions matter. So, Steve, you've traveled so much and some people might say that you're out there searching for something and what inspires you to search and what do you love about the search? When I was a kid, I think it was, I want to go everywhere just because it would be cool. But I think there was actually something deeper because the older you get and as you start recognizing things when you go someplace and you you like something about the people or now you've got a friend in Israel or you've got a friend in France or wherever it might be. And then you start thinking, why are they that way? And faith is a huge part of it in every civilization. There's no faith that doesn't say, essentially the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. And so I think there's something deeper than just, I want to travel everywhere to, now it's, I want to know the people everywhere and what makes them tick. And I always hear something new every time you talk to a new person 
Yeah. Uh, they've got some little story about what happened in their life and how they leaned on their faith or maybe later looked back and thought, you know, I didn't realize it, but God was leading me. I love hearing those. That encourages me in, in my own spiritual quest. I think one of the things that's really interesting about travel, too, is we have these assumptions about people in different places, and we essentially assume they're all the same, right? Oh, if I get to Turkey and it's 98% Muslim, that means everyone is, right? So what are some of those things that you've realized as you've traveled? What are some differences you've uncovered? I think, especially here, we're in the Middle East. I see such instant care for anyone who is has some disability, for instance. Often I see, for instance, in the state, in states in the big city, if someone is blind or if somebody is uh, in a wheelchair, sometimes people sort of shy away like, well, I don't want to be rude, I don't want to intrude. My experience in the Middle East is if somebody is going along and they see someone needing help, they just rush to them. There are times, for instance, in the in looking in the Garden of Gethsemane, taking a tour group there, and I had a tour member who was blind. Everybody rushed to take him, and they opened the gates to the two and three thousand year old olive trees, and they wanted to be sure he had the experience we were having with their eyes. They took him over and let him put his hands on the trees and see how big they were and, and feel the shape. I love that about this culture here in the Middle East. Just that instant, there might be a need, and how can I help you? How can I be hospitable? Yeah. And I want to be that way. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> like, this is a question we often ask on the show, which is, how has God surprised you um, in your experience or in your journey? So, in your travels, where have you really felt like oh, this is God saying something to me that I hadn't expected. Yeah, I can think of times when I thought I was having a cultural experience or was set up to have a cultural experience. For instance, studying Hinduism. And then just outside of Mumbai, which was Bombay, there's the Elephantic Caves where you go and they have all of these ancient carvings. And so I go and I'm, I'm learning and I'm excited to learn. And, and suddenly as they were explaining the, the teachings, it shifted from cultural, uh, maybe shifted from here to here. And I thought for just a second, I caught a glimpse that, oh, I think I get what this is about. And I want to figure out how I can hold on to that. And so it seems whoever I've talked to or wherever in the world we've been able to go, I try and be aware of that. You do, you always prepare yourself. You want to learn. And yet I love that moment when it goes from your head to your heart. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to put that. I like that a lot. I go more from my heart to my head. You start there. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's probably the better way to be, but I'm, I'm getting know. there slowly. <laughs> and here we are in this beautiful setting, ancient and modern all at the same time. What do you wish people knew back home about this place? What's the one thing you really want to convey? I would like people not to be afraid of each other. And we see things on the news and it's always the sensational things. Uh, when I take a tour to the Middle East, people very often will say, oh, I just don't know if I could ever go there. I have friends in the Middle East who I say, you should come stay with me if you come to the States. And they say, oh, I would never go to the States. And I say, why? And they say, have you seen the television? <laughs> it's dangerous. And what gets in the news is often just the extremes. When you meet the people, then the fear melts away. And so I wish people knew you could come here and you can have friendly interchanges and you can just enjoy the world that we live in. I don't know if I'm ever happier than when I'm in an airport and I hear six different languages and I can't speak them. I almost feel like, dang, I've got to go home and learn whatever that is. I can't, I don't have time to learn all the languages, but those little moments, I remember standing in an airport in Brussels and feeling a tag on my sleeve. And it was, I think they were maybe four foot six, this row of nuns, turned out they were from Peru and they couldn't figure out where to go and they didn't speak the language, but I suppose I looked unthreatening enough unimposing enough that they ventured to, to just hold up their ticket. And so I did that. I actually, I feel very emotional about this. 
I felt really honored that I had this moment and that they would pick me and that I, it could have been somebody else, but I got to be the one to help them find their way to their gate and reassure them. And we didn't even speak the same language, but I was just pointing out numbers and, and sort of giving them a, a you know, metaphorical pat on the back. And I left and I thought, what just happened to me? Because I just felt like, <laughs> like the Grinch whose heart had grown three sizes. I just, I was happy all day because I got to have that interchange and somebody's life was a little bit better because we had that little moment together. Yeah, that's really great. There's some ideas from our interviews that have stayed with me. This idea of that it's not about belief, really. Belief or faith, then maybe those words are overused in English. And maybe what we need to think about is using the word of trust in God and loyalty to God and a conversation with God and openness to God. Um, and that's been a really important idea for me. Here's one of my favorite things too. I used to hear about interfaith work and I think I was confusing that with ecumenicalism where we'll all get rid of our, our differing beliefs and find some common core and basically water down what we believe. But in actual interfaith work, what I've discovered, and I've just heard it said by, by rabbis and imams and others, that they feel actually strengthened in their own faith as they work with other people. And again, people lose fear, they gain respect, and I think it's really great. We can work together on something and actually be strengthened in our own tradition by interacting with people from other traditions. So tell me about a time that you've actually done this. I mean, we've I've heard this on the show a lot. It's about people coming together and solving a problem in the community that they see. So when's the time that you've been able to do that with folks? I kind of have a story about that that one of the guests told me. Is that is that okay? Okay. <laughs> I was talking to a president of a college and and she had traveled in India and she was really a seeker. She started off uh, Christian and then sort of became Hindu and then sort of found something in the middle. <laughs> yeah. But she told about a group of people here in the U.S. and they had some farmers who came from the Middle East. They were refugees and they were trying to figure out how to work together. And so they came together and, and when they got to the meeting, they each sat in their own group, didn't know what to say to each other. But as soon as she said, who knows about irrigation? <laughs> And there were some people in each group said, well, we do it this way, we do it this way. Really? How do you? And instantly, because they had a third thing, they weren't doing comparative religion class. They were talking about how to solve irrigation problems. And there was experience on both sides. And within a few minutes, they were all talking to each other and the divide had come together. Right. And so it's that whole idea of you work together on a third thing that's important to both of you. And that could be feeding people in your town. That could be uh, doing- Homeless teenagers. Yeah, homeless teenagers, whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and that's the point that brings people together because we have the same things that are important to each of us that we want to accomplish. Right. That's another idea from the show that we've recently, we recently had an interview where someone said, find someone who scares you, <laughs> but cares about what you care about and they have their own reasons for it and yeah. work together. There is a little A-frame church in downtown Provo. It's the Provo Community Congregational Church in the city where I live and they need a new roof or they needed a new roof. And they are definitely in the minority and they're surrounded by a majority faith, but what we were able to do is, uh, I started singing in the interfaith choir with my wife. Yeah. And we had a great time there. We loved the music we were singing. And, but then we started hearing about the needs because we practiced at that building. And so we were able to say, you know, there's this website, justserve.org. And you can say, we have this need or we have this project and we're doing something this day. Come help us out. And they had people show up. And it was really cool to be able to help make that connection, which I only knew about because I was singing in the choir that practiced there and got to interact with people who weren't of my faith. Right. And that's so central, right? If we don't get to know each other, we can't help each other. Mm. And I mean, we talked about 
on this trip, we had a little conversation about the golden rule. Sometimes the golden rule doesn't actually help the other person because you're so busy thinking, well, I would want it this way, right? Um, but if you actually get to know people, you know what they do need and what they do want. What they actually need, yeah. yeah. I think that's really important. So you've talked to so many people about their practices, about their uh, beliefs. How has that impacted your own practice? I think it's increased my trust. I worry less about things. I actually think I have more faith because of exposure to more people of faith, even though they were different traditions. I just hear about ways that in people's individual lives, God is working. That tells me he's working in my life too. And that as insignificant as I might be, or, or as petty as some little problem might be we're solving in our family, I just have this underlying trust that something is holding us all up. I don't yeah. know how else to call it. Yeah. And that when I don't know how things are going to go, I can relax into that. And that's faith. It's not knowing, but it's trust. Make sure to check out YouTube for videos from locations throughout our Crossroads of Faith series, focusing on Turkey. Next week, we'll be exploring the ancient synagogue in Sardis and the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Thanks to Avram Shannon, Cecilia Peake, Christine Isom for Haran, Kent Brown, Cheryl and Jeff Flake, Luke Drake, Matthew Gray, Avram Savinti, Kunt Sarpialchen, Ahmet Sami Kuchuk, Muzaffar and Esungul Arslan, Cynthia Finlayson, Kevin Blankenship, Rasul Sorhabi, and Lutvi Bedar for speaking with us. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Emma Engerbretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinez. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips, Mitchell Towsley, Joshua Fouts, and Carly Wilson. Our voices for English translation include Eric Marble, Roger Hoffman, and Roger Sorensen. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, share an episode with a friend or leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That really helps spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.